Good morning. We have a few coming in. They're signing up. I think everyone's a little delayed today because of the massive snowfall this week. It's been exhausting for some of us. Well, welcome everyone to our class this morning. Uh, one week from today is Christmas Day. And we have a special guest speaker because I'm going to be out of town. Bob will be speaking next Sunday. So you have a special treat for that. As we start this morning, let's bow in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we're so thankful for uh, our service today, of being together, um, of being able to be here despite all the difficulties with the weather. We're so thankful for your son and his life, his example. We're so thankful for this time we can look into your word and learn more about what your will for us is in this life. We ask you bless us as we uh, commune with each other and worship today. In Christ's name, amen. So this is our third lesson in um, our dis- our review of Jesus and the land. Um, as we read through the Bible, uh, one thing we notice is uh, between the Old and New Testament, there's a number of new players that come on the scene. And you guys all realize this, I think, that between the Old and New Testament, this little crease right here... Uh, is really 400 years. 400 years between Malachi, 400 years between the birth of Christ. And during this time, nothing was written, or nothing was written that we recognize as being inspired by God. 400 years of God being silent. 400 years is a long time. That would be what, about 1620 or 1622 in our history, which would put uh, the Mayflower arriving about that time. And if you think of the Mayflower arriving in November 11, 1620, that is a long time ago. Um, what do you think the Jewish people thought? Where is God? God has not spoken to his people for 400 years. Or God does not, you know, our thinking, God does not work like that anymore. God does not speak to his people. But there's a lot happening during this 400-year period. The Pharisees come on the scene. The Sadducees come on the scene. The synagogue becomes a focal of the Jewish community. And to understand the first century in which Christ lived, we need to know more about what happened during this 400 years. So that's what we're going to cover today, the history of this 400-year period. But before we do that, I wanted just to look at kind of the differences between the Old Testament and New Testament. Of course, the Old Testament, we remember the patriarchs, the prophets, the judges, the kings, and the promised land was a, a big part of that. But in the New Testament, really is about Jesus and the disciples, the Gospels, and 
these other characters that show up, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, teachers of the law, rabbis, synagogues. What, who are these? Who are these people? So I know you guys have studied this, and, but we want to refresh our memory this morning about who these people are. Who are these groups? So, the Pharisees uh, were a Jewish group mentioned 98 times in the New Testament. They derived their standing through devotion to the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and both uh, the prophets as well, the written word and especially the oral law, and believed they were religious guides to the common people. They call them the Hat Haharis, people of the land. They believed in the resurrection and angels and spirits. They constantly increased the interpretation of the oral law. So what is the oral law? We read about that in the New Testament. The Pharisees believed that it was given to Moses on Mount Sinai at the same time as he received the Ten Commandments. Last week we talked about how many times the Pharisees challenged Jesus testing his honor at one time, you recall, Jesus called them blind guides or white sepulchers. Matthew 23, Jesus said to the crowds at his, and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. You must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So why did Jesus take such an issue with Pharisees? Because actually, he and they were more closely aligned in their theology. Pharisees constant, But the Pharisees constantly misapplied God's word. Okay, who are these guys? The Sadducees. Sounds kind of familiar. The same. But they are not. They believed only in the first five books of Moses, not the prophets. They did not believe in the oral law. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirits. They were rulers of the temple. They controlled the Sanhedrin, which acted as a governing body throughout Judea, but it was primarily based in Jerusalem. They were political. They were aristocracies, and they were Hellenized, meaning they brought in Greek culture. They actually did not survive after the cleansing of the, or the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Sometimes we read about the scribes. Scribes were in demand because they prepared copies of Israel's sacred literature and on parchment scrolls. They were experts in copying scripture. They used a reed as a pen, and each time before they wrote the word Jehovah, they would take a ritual cleansing bath, a mikvah bath, so to be ritually clean when they wrote down God's word. To ensure the, the co- uh, scriptures were copied correctly, they would count each letter and each word on each line on each page to make sure they were perfect. Scribes adhered to the teachings of the Pharisees and shared their religious doctrine and views 
and, and legalism. They were experts in what the scriptures said, but not how to apply it. Now, I just mentioned a mikvah bath. A mikvah was a ritual bath designed by the Jews to, uh, for the Jews for rite of purification. Uh, a mikvah must, according to the classical regulations, contain enough water to cover the entire body, and so you'd be fully immersed, and it was used for a number of issues involving purification. Sounds like baptism, doesn't it? So when the Jews were already accustomed to ritual purifications in a mikvah bath, when they understood that to be clean, to be ritually clean and be baptized was a very easy transition for them. Teachers of the law. Teachers of the law were experts in the law of Moses, aligned with the Pharisees, and most likely were on the levels of the rabbis. This was the most difficult to find out exactly who these people were. There's not a lot of information about them, but they were very similar to uh, rabbis in that time period, uh, as they were mentioned in the New Testament. Something else that came up uh, in the first uh, century, uh, the synagogue. That was not in the Old Testament. It was primarily a place of community, a place of assembly, uh, Sabbath discussions of the Torah, weekly teachings by the rabbis to children called Beth Sefer was, or elementary school where children learned that Hebrew alphabet, reading, writing, and the fundamental teachings of the Torah. Most ch- children had the entire first five books of Moses, the Old Testament, memorized by age 10. We also think synagogue is what? Church for the Jews, right? But that's not correct. The synagogue was not a place of worship. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. You may remember Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well. What did she say, sir? She said, talking to Jesus, the woman said, and this is John 5.19, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we worship we used to worship is in Jerusalem. So worship was in Jerusalem. Study and community was in the synagogue in each town. Just a little bit about the Sanhedrin. It was an assembly of, of either 23 or 71 elders made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and other aristocratic groups. It was the Supreme Court Council and Tribunal of the Jews headed up by the high priest and having religious, civil, and criminal jurisdiction. So that's a little background about who the new players were in the New Testament. Now we're going to discuss or talk about what happened during the 400 years of history between the Testaments. Some might think this is interesting. Some might think this is inspiring. But when I talk about my lessons at home, the word boring came up when it came up to history. <laughs> of course, I was shocked that I could hear that. Boring. History may be boring, but I think this will all give all of us a great background about what happened during this time period and how it affect the time of Jesus. So here we go. 
And 30, uh, we're talking about these 400 years, so I'm going to go back to 336 B.C. A guy named Philip ruled the country of Greece. His goal was to take Hellenism to the world, which was Greek culture. Philip's dies and his son, Alexander, I think I skipped ahead too much here, Alexander, who is called Alexander the Great, took over and at that time conquered most of the known world. Alexander fights for a few years, but then he too dies at the young age of 32. So his territories are divided up between his four generals. And two of them here, two of the primary ones here, are Ptolemy, which took over Egypt, and part of Palestine and a guy named Seleucid. So you can see where Seleucid is in in pink here and Ptolemy, if I can get this to work, which I can't. Yeah. Seleucid in pink and Ptolemy's down there in green in Egypt. So over time, Seleucid and Ptolemy uh, came at odds their group and believe it or not <laughs> they would fight over I can't even see it up there they would fight over Palestine now why in the world would they care to fight over this little town this little podunk country of Palestine why would they do that as we talked about last week or week before I can't remember major trade routes filed through Judah. And this was a key area to have control over. So that's why they fought over the area of Palestine. Over the next 150 years, this little piece of property, Ptolemy and Seleucid fought over it. When when Ptolemy was in charge of Palestine, the Jews that lived there got to practice their own religion as they wanted. However, when Seleucids were in charge, they liked Hellenism and tried to convert the people to the Greek way of life, which primarily meant worshiping the Greek gods, the, the divinities, and the spirits of nature and the underworld. Because to Seleucids, everything about Greece was superior when Ptolemy was in control, the people of Israel could do their own thing religiously. But when Seleucid was the cult was in control, they tried to push Hellenism. So finally, we're still in this 400-year period, 198 B.C., the Seleucids and the Ptolemies fight again, and the Seleucids win. The king at that time was named Antiochus III, or the Great who is the grandson of the original Seleucid. In the book of Josephus, which is a history of this time frame, said he beat the Egyptians and gets control of Israel, and to celebrate, he comes to Jerusalem, where he is warmly received by the Jewish people. Now that doesn't sound right, does it? Seleucid, who was persecuting the Jews, came in and he is warmly received by the Jewish people. Why was this the case? Why did the Jews cooperate with Antiochus? Because not all the Jews opposed Hellenism, especially the leaders of that day. They were saying, 
hey, we need to get modern. We need to get with it. We're tired of being this little country in the middle of nowhere. We want to blend in with everybody else. So they bought into the Greek culture. But there was another group of Jews that said, no. We need to be faithful to the laws of God, to our religious observances, and the culture God has given us. This group was known as the Hasidim. The Hasidim means purist, or the ones that followed what God had given them. Today they call these people, you may have heard this, Hasidic, or Hasidic Jews. The Hasidic Jews today in Israel are the ones that are the righteous ones, or the ones that are the dedicated ones. The New Testament calls these people Pharisees. So the Hasidim, the ones that were our forerunners to the Pharisees were the religious ones that opposed Hellenism back in the day. 178 BC, Antiochus IV takes over for his father after his father dies, and he is even more evil than his father was. So when he comes to Jerusalem and he plunders the temple, and he decides it's a good idea to offer pigs on the altar at the temple. Is this offensive to the Jews? This is extremely offensive to the Jews, at least the Hasidim, the ones that were dedicated to God. So, Antiochus of the Force goes on a rampage to enforce Hellenism on all the peoples and the providences. They will worship the Greek gods. He sent a philosopher to Jerusalem, and this philosopher sets up a statue uh, in the temple to the god Zeus and begins offering pigs every day on the altar. And then Antiochus sends an army around all over the Palestine to enforce Hellenism. And he tells the Jews, if you circumcise your son, you will be put to death. If you observe the Sabbath, you will be put to death. If you keep any of your Jewish festivals, you will be put to death. If you keep any of the laws of Moses, you will be put to death. So when Antiochus came to the throne, he called himself this word epiphanes, which means illustrious one. The Jews on a play on words, called him Epinemies, which means madman. Now the Jewish leaders that were buying into all this were telling everyone that they had to get with it, that they had to get modern. But the average Jew, especially the Hasidim, couldn't stand what was happening at all. So in a minute, we're going to read from the book of Maccabees. Um, You may be familiar or completely unfamiliar with this book of Maccabees. It is an apocryphal book that was written at the time. It is historical. It's poetic. It's romantic. It has prayers, but it is not inspired. There are 13 of these books. We'll include 1st and 2nd Maccabees. 
They're historical books. They tell the story of this period of time in Jewish history. So, Maccabees 160 says, According to the decree they put to death the women who had their children circumcised, and their families and those who circumcised them, they hung the infants from their mother's necks. But many of the Jews stood firm and resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be filed by food or profane the holy covenant, and they did die. So there was great, great persecution in the land of Judea. Continuing on in Second Maccabees, it came to pass also that seven brethren with their mother were taken and compelled by the king against the law to taste swine's flesh and were tormented with scourges and whips. But one of them who had spake first said thus, What wouldst thou ask us to learn of us? We are ready to die rather than to transgress the laws of our fathers. Then the king, being enraged, commanded pans of cauldrons to be hot, which forth he he heeded, he, con- he commanded to cut the tongue out of him that spake first, and to cut off parts of his body, as his mother looked on. When, they, when he was thus maimed and all his members, he commanded him to be yet alive, brought into the fire, and to be fried in the pan. As the va- vapor of the pan was for a good s- space dispersed, they exhorted one another with their mother to die manfully. Lord God looked upon us and in truth has comforted us as Moses in his song which witnessed to their faces declared saying and he shall be comforted in his servants Antiochus the fourth was bent on converting this country to Greek culture to the point of torture sixty eight BC Antiochus sends his, his uh, army around the country to convert the entire country to Hellenism, as we discussed. And he comes to this town in Jerusalem called Modin. And we don't know this, this town from the Bible, but it's a small town northwest of J- Jerusalem. So an emissary comes up into this community and is trying to get them to con- conform and to sacrifice to the Greek gods. So they look around and they find it's the most oldest respected man of the community, a man named Matthias. And they told Matthias to go forth to offer the pagan sacrifice, to be the example. But Matthias refuses because he is part of the Hasidim. He is dedicated to God. Then the king's officers who were enforcing apostasy came to the city of Modin and to make them an offer of sacrifice. Many of the Israelites came to them, and Matthias and his sons were assembled. And the king's officers spoke to Matthias as follows, You are a leader, honor and, and great in this city, and supported by your sons and brothers. Now be the first to come and do what the king commands, as all the Gentiles and the men of Judah, those who are left in Jerusalem, have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king. And you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts.
But Matthias answered and said in a loud voice, Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to do this, to his commands, departing each from his religious of his fathers, yet I and my brothers will live by the covenant of our fathers. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right or to the left. And when he finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer the sacrifice on the altar of Modin, according to the king's command. So when Messiah saw it, he burned with zeal, and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him upon the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officers, who were forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar, and he, and he burned with zeal for the law, as, as Phoebus and Ziri, the son of, of Surabi, had. Then Matthew, Matthias, cried out, and the city, with a loud voice, saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. And he and his sons fled to the hills and left that city as they had. So the emissary comes to Modin and asks Matthias, the most eldest person there, to offer the sacrifice, but he refuses. So there's another fellow Jew in the crowd that is scared to death that if they don't do the sacrifice, the entire village will be punished. So he steps forward to offer the sacrifice first. What does Matthias do? He grabs his dagger and walks up and kills his fellow Jew. Then he kills the emissary and the guards. And then they run for the hills. Matthias was an old man when this took place. And he's out on the run from the men from Greece. By the way, Matthias's family name was Hasmo. Hasmo, Hasmoneans. He was the family of the Hasmoneans, which are the precursors to the Sadducees. So Matthias dies, and his leadership goes to his five boys. But before he dies, he appoints Judas, the rightful leader. Here's a photo of Judas. Now, Judas' nickname was the Hammer. That's a great nickname to have if you're going to be the leader of a bunch of warriors. And he was a great leader. So he began guerrilla warfare against Antiochus IV and his army. So they, with their small band of dedicated Jews, would go from village to village, killing Antiochus' fourth men. They began these attacks and would run back into the hills and they would make clean they were making a clean sweep through the country. They also started to begin to get a following of all the Hasidim, the purists in the area, those who were zealous for God, and throwing out the armies of Antiochus. Finally, they come to Jerusalem. 164 B.C. Judas and his family finally get to Jerusalem. 
there was a garrison there of Atychus the fourth. They fought and defeated them. Then they came to the temple. They were shocked. The altar had been covered in pig's blood, and weeds had grown up in the temple compound. Then said Judas and his brother, Behold, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up and cleanse the temple, the sanctuary, and dedicate it. So all the army assembled, and they went up to Mount Zion, and they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. And the courts, they saw bushes sprung up as a thicket, and as one of the mountains, they saw that also the chambers of the priests was in ruins. Then they rented their clothes and mourned with a great lamentation and sprinkled themselves with ashes. They fell on their face on the ground and surrounded the signal on the trumpets and cried out to heaven. Then Judas detained detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the entire sanctuary. And they took unhewed stones as the law directs and built a new altar like the former one. They also rebuilt the sanctuary and the interior of the temple and consecrated the courts. They made new holy vessels and brought the lampstands, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple. So, they went up to the temple. It was desecrated. They rebuilt the the altar. They cleaned it of pig's blood. They replaced all the items in the temple that were supposed to be there. So they had a celebration. And dedicated the altar for eight days and offered burnt offerings and gladness. They offered a sacrifice of deliverance and praise to God. They decorated the front of the temple with golden crowns and small shields. They restored the gates and the chambers for the priests and furnished them with doors. There was very great gladness among the people and they they reproached the Gentiles and the reproach of the Gentiles was removed. Then Judas and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year at this season the days of dedication of the altar should be observed with gladness and joy for eight days. Now the Talmud provides more information about this story that Josephus the historian in the book of Maccabees does not. That the Talmud tells us that when they reestablished the temple and were ready to burn the menorah, they had only enough oil for one day. It took eight days to purify olive oil so that it would burn and and ritually be purified. Since they couldn't just go out and buy olive oil after they cleansed the temple, they got some olive oil that was left over and found out they only had enough left for one day. So they lit the menorah, and as the tradition goes, the one day of oil lasted for the entire eight days, so that everyone knew that God had blessed them in their efforts and performed a miracle, giving them eight days of light. So, this time of year, this eight-day festival is known as the Feast of Dedication. the Festival of Lights, or today, Hanukkah. The Jewish Festival of Hanukkah. 
It was to remind the Jews of the struggle and the dedication of the people who had the true belief and teachings of their God. So, from the year 164, when this happened, all the way to the time of Christ, 150 years later, every year they celebrated the Feast of Dedication. So, this is only found one place in the New Testament scriptures. John 10. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. So now we know the background of the celebration of this Jewish festival, Hanukkah. The festival of lights, and why at this time of year people display a menorah uh, in their homes. So, after this brief history we went through today, we know the background of where the Pharisees began. They were the Hasidim, the purists from this time period. Also, the Sadducees, came from the family of Matthias and the house of the Hasmo or Hasmoneans who took over the operation of the temple after it was restored. Something else to note. Note to myself. The Old Testament describes all the feasts and festivals that God required. In Leviticus, there to be observed the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, Day of Atonement, tabernacles, and others. But this feast, the feast of dedication, was not sanctioned in the Old Testament. God did not command this feast. It was a festival, what, of thanksgiving and praise to God for the military victory and for reclaiming the temple back to God. That begs a question on us. How should we praise God? How should we celebrate things that God has done for us? My opinion, always, every day, we should praise Him. Romans 14.5 says, One day may esteem a day more than another, but, but both can do that and give thanks to God. So it's Christmas time. I know there's been articles in our bulletin and other places about uh, how should we celebrate this time of year? What should we think of this time of year? Should we praise God for this or not? Each of us can choose in our own way how to do that. But many times this time of year when the entire world is celebrating the birth of Christ we remain silent. We sit so quiet. We remember Christ's birth we often hardly mention it sometimes. Of all people who should be praising God this time of year, to me, it is us, God's people. So in that light, I'm going to leave you with these verses, and uh, our class will be over. Luke 2.8 And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy to all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is to be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothing and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Oops. <laughs> that messed up. <laughs> Last verse. Isaiah 9, 6. For us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of greatness, of his government and peace, there will be no end. Thank you for your attention this morning. Have a great holiday week. Um, Enjoy it with your families. I appreciate your time. You're dismissed.